Amy, on this podcast, we try to always offer useful takeaways. And if you learn nothing else from us, learn this useful parenting lesson by Pampers Cruisers 360. Pampers Cruisers 360 are the ultimate parent hack, the best diaper to use as soon as your baby starts standing or walking. Instead of ordinary diaper tabs, they have a unique 360-degree stretchy waistband that moves with your wild child. Pampers Cruisers 360 makes it so easy to change your baby. Who probably doesn't stop moving just because they need a diaper changed? Just slide on to apply and away they go. And fear not, parents. Pampers Cruisers 360 offers an up to 100% leak-free fit, and they just got even better with a new blowout barrier. Need we say more? For Trusted Protection Trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Then redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupons, savings, and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers cash has no cash value. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fresh Take from What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. This is Margaret. And this is Amy. And today we are talking to Dr. Janice Johnson-Dias. She's a professor of sociology at John Jay College. She is the co-founder and president of the public health and social action organization, Grassroots Community Foundation, and its super camp for girls. Her collaborative work on black girls' mental, sexual, and physical health issues earned her a special congressional recognition. Born in Jamaica, Dr. Johnson Dias moved to the United States at age 12 and now lives in New Jersey with her husband, daughter, and dog. Her new book is Parent Like It Matters, How to Raise Joyful Change-Making Girls. Janice says this book is a blueprint to embolden our girls to be critical thinkers, fearless doers, and joyful change agents for our futures. Welcome, Janice. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. We like a big bio up front. It makes people know they're going to hear something, you know? We like a big bio. Let's see if I can live up to the bio. (laughs) One of the ideas in this book that really struck me, and I've heard it said by our audience members, is mattering to yourself as a parent so that you can give the gift of mattering to your girls. And that's a step we sometimes skip that like we can't pull from an empty bucket to feed other people. And like, how do we matter to ourselves? And what does that work look like before we even start the conversation about what we're going to try to give to our girls? This concept of mattering is so central to everything that I write in this book and so central to the way that I think about equity a change-making, and girls in particular. And though the book is talking to all caregivers, there's a special attention I want to really draw as it relates to mothers in particular and people who do the work of mothering. Is so often that feels like martyr work, like I should throw myself on the cross of caring for my kids and whatever happens to me is just insignificant. (laughs) And then we see the process gets replicated when the children start to date, when they start to have their own families later in life. And then we're like, I don't know why she won't do this. Why won't she pay attention to herself? Mm -hmm. And all she had was the model and the models of women in her life. And so I push in this book to say that you must first matter to yourself, not in the like simply put on your mask before you put the mask on to children, but like fundamentally matter to yourself. Mm -hmm. Know who you are. 
What is it that you have to offer to yourself, to your children, and to the world? And really get into that. For some people, the difficulty of trying to figure out if they matter comes out of pain. Mine. I discuss at length my own pain. For other people, their childhoods were not as marred with abandonment and all the rest of those issues, but there's something else. But each of us have a journey to discover ourselves. And so often when we go into parenting, we devote all the energy to the children and we're at the service of the children and forget to service ourselves, both in practical ways like sleep and eating and et cetera, but in fundamental philosophical ways. Who am I? What am I passionate about? What do I care about? Because children watch us more than they listen to us. Yeah, you quote W.E.B. Du Bois, children learn more from what you are than what you teach. You have to be it so your kids can see it because otherwise, I wish there was a magic box you could open in the storeroom and hand to your kids, but it's a lot of self-work, which, and also we say a lot, like, it seems, sometimes we present things and it's like, oh, this seems like another thing on my list. This seems hard. I'm already tired. I'm trying my best. But this work is so useful for ourselves. And it actually makes parenting easier if we can find a way to do it. Can you talk a little bit about how you coach and see people into finding the entry point to doing that work so that it doesn't just feel like, I'm sorry, I don't have any more time. I'm busy burning dinner. I'm too busy to self-actualize. I'm too, too busy. I actually think that that's what most people think. I always, you know, right now I'm in the process of deciding on merch, right? Like what will be the thing? And I really want to give a 10-minute hourglass, right? Mm. And of course I can't find one. If anybody knows where I can find a 10-minute hourglass that I can monograph. I, yeah, I found something on Amazon actually. Amy's a big hourglass fan. This is a random connection because she always talks about her hourglass. Because I think that that's the entry point. The entry point is in a world where the world of work is so disruptive, the world of school systems are so disruptive, where can I start to pay attention to myself? And I'm really asking caregivers to give themselves 10 minutes each day. 10 minutes with themselves, for themselves. And I'm not talking self-care, nail, massage, Peloton. I'm talking 10 minutes to ask yourself, what do I care about? What is actually the thing that makes me feel really excited? And I think that that question goes lost all the time. In the book, I detail my relationship with a woman named Lisa, right? And it's just like this idea of like, what makes you feel excited and passionate? Where can you start is that you need to have an answer to that question. If you don't have an answer to that question, then I would argue that you have a journey to make, right? And that journey is connected to the way you parent. So once you get excited about something that's exciting to you, then you can engender excitement in your children. And then the labor of parenting them becomes really different. It becomes lesser in a way, right? I mean, it becomes lighter, I guess. Yes, it becomes lighter. The thing is, there's all this pragmatic administrative nonsense about parenting, <laughs> right? Like <laughs> feed them, make sure they don't die, make sure they don't kill others, make sure they do their laundry, rooms are clean, etc. But then there is this other piece of relating to them. And I find that the administrative stuff can be largely outsourced, <laughs> right? But this piece of connecting to them and helping them be real human beings in the world, that's your work. That's really the work. And that feels laborious if you feel like I'm spending all this time trying to get them to be a thing. 
And the whole time you don't have a jumping off point because they're passionate about wanting to play video games, this thing on TikTok that like you cannot relate to them because you don't have a touch point. And I think passion is a real touch point that caregivers can have. I'm excited about this thing. What are you excited about? Why does that make you excited? But often caregivers are like people seem devoid of any passions. And that makes you irritating to a kid and probably irritating to your friends. They're not saying it, (laughs) (laughs) right? But it is really central to kind of building a full selfhood, even as you're trying to raise and contribute to other human beings. You talk in this book, Janice, about the difference between happiness and joy. And just now when you were talking about playing video games and looking at TikTok, two things that my kids would say bring them happiness. And I suppose they do, but they don't bring them joy, it occurs to me. So talk about the difference between happiness and joy. Happy is, you know, largely performative and temporary. It is for others. Happiness is so that people see your smile, right? And that you do all of those things to make people feel comfortable with who you are. Joy, on the other hand, is about a kind of peacefulness, what sometimes people might call fulfillment. And that lives there because you have been attending to yourself, not in some sporadic way, but in a way that is eternal, consistent, and sustainable, And so a joyful person can be pissed off today, right? Uh, Can be angry today, can be angry maybe even several days, but is seeking to really be in tune with who they are. It is the knowing of self that engenders, right, kind of joyfulness inside. And that means that you have to attend not only to your physical health, your mental health, but the things that make you passionate. And that serenity is joyfulness. I think you also talk about something that really resonated with me as the idea that girls develop a performance self, which seems to me in this same category, that it's somehow it's not their authentic joy. It's a self. And listen, we have all done this, right? I always had a persona going on, partly because I probably came from an actory background and that worked for me. But what's the connection between that authentic joy and kind of helping our girls get beyond this idea of the performance self? So I think that the structural spaces, educational spaces, community spaces, parental spaces, all invite girls to not be themselves because complexity in girls is seen as oversensitive, unmanageable, all the rest of these things. And in a society that doesn't say it out loud enough, we're just, we've decided that girls are second-class citizens, And we show them that in every way. So in order to be able to get attention as a second-class citizens, you have to develop a set of performance selves, right? So you have to either be super attentive, extra angry, you're really into it, throwing something away. And so much of what girls are taught to is to attend to the outside of themselves, right? We have a whole culture that focuses on how we look, ways of scrutinizing our bodies from the minute that we were born in ways that we do not do for people who are named or considered boys. So in every corner of a girl's life, there is some sense that you should be attending to something outside of yourself. And when girls decide that they're going to attend to inside themselves, people will deem them as selfish, angry, troublesome. But it is that framework. And that's why I think in the household, is the place where we can set the foundation for girls to not be performative, to in fact take all the time they need 
to say that I need to understand me. I need to be true to me. And it is not like performance doesn't matter. We're in a social world, right? There's some level of performance. There's a role for that. There's a role for that. Decorum, respectability, all of those things, right? We have to engage with people, but that's not all of me. Too often, if we were thinking about this in a pie chart kind of way, we end up saying to girls, 70% should be performance. There's some 30% that should be left for you. And that is not an appropriate condition. We have pushed girls into being performances of themselves. And that rejection, that is the principle I really want caregivers to reject. I want them to see girls, know girls, and really push girls to be themselves, regardless of the fact that it may not be digestible for everyone. Wow. Let's take a break. When we come back, let's talk about how we're going to do that, how we're going to create these joyful change-making girls. Margaret, exciting news. I am about to have a new baby nephew, and believe it or not, this will be my 13th nephew. Amy, you're ready to give up your amateur status. You're a pro aunt at this (laughs) point. Our family has seen a lot of babies. And as soon as they start standing or walking, I send them all a whole lot of Pampers Cruisers 360. Pampers Cruisers 360 don't have ordinary diaper tabs. Instead, they have a unique 360 degree stretchy waistband that moves with your newly mobile little one. Pampers Cruisers 360 offer a gap-free fit that is up to 100% leak-proof, crucial once your baby is quite literally up and at And that gap-free fit helps prevent your baby from taking off their diaper, a habit you do not want them to get into. You can say that again. And Pampers Cruisers 360 just got even better with a new blowout barrier. Need we even elaborate on the need for that, friends? For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Then redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers cash has no cash value. Margaret, When you've got kids, as just about everybody listening to this right now does, you're probably looking at what they eat and seriously wondering how they could possibly be getting all of the vitamins and minerals they need to grow big and strong. That's why Haya was created, the pediatrician-approved, super-powered, chewable vitamin for kids. Haya fills the most common gaps in modern children's diets to provide the full-body nourishment our kids need. And yes, Even your picky eaters will approve. I know mine does. Formulated with the help of nutritional experts, Haya is pressed with a blend of 12 organic fruits and vegetables. Then it's supercharged with 15 essential vitamins and minerals to help support our kids' growing brains and bodies. And Haya vitamins are sent straight to your door, which means you set it and forget it and give yourself one less thing to worry about. We've worked out a special deal with Haya for their best-selling children's vitamin. Receive 50% off your first order. To claim this deal, you must go to HayaHealth.com slash fresh. This deal is not available on their regular website. Go to H-I-Y-A-H-E-A-L-T-H-HayaHealth.com slash fresh to get your kids the full body nourishment they need to grow into healthy adults. So Janice, in your book, you talk a lot about volunteering, that that's an important part of creating a life that's filled with joy for our girls, really for any of us. Can you talk about that? Yes. So I really, this concept of volunteering, I've been having a lot of conversations over the past couple of days because I had a a mom who was like, well, I give stuff and my kids don't want to come with me. And, you know, like, it's just like, 
I don't understand how they're going to be kids who care about the world. I seem to be the only one that cares about the world. And I was like, but you make it look horrible. <laughs> you make, right? Like, you, you make caring about the world not a thing, right. right? So you have marched to your children's room and you're like, get all the things that you're not using. We're giving those away, right? It's 6 a.m. in the morning. We're going to pick up trash on the side of the road, right? Thanksgiving morning. I don't care that you want to watch this football game. We're going to the soup kitchen. So, so much about volunteering is this demanding, unfun experience. And that is not what I think we should be doing. We should be thinking about volunteering, especially those of us who are not economically depressed, as a part and practice of our lives. What do I have to give to those who need? What are my excesses? And that excesses also includes our talents. So much of volunteering is material. A thing I buy, I drop it off, a thing I do sporadically. I want us to develop a mindset of gratitude that includes volunteering. So when we give to those who are in need, right, it is so much more rewarding to us than it is to the person we are giving, because often we're filling a temporary need, right? It is emergency care, most volunteering is, right? But this sense, this feeling of having contributed is actually quite everlasting in a way that that pair of socks, that meal at that soup kitchen is not. And we don't often think about how much we get from volunteering. But when we engage in this process of not only volunteering consistently in the same places, trying to develop relationships with the people with whom we are serving, then we build a life of gratitude. And that is all of those ingredients are what goes to that joyfulness, right? I love piano. I taught a kid how to play the piano or I taught a senior how to play the piano. And you're giving more than just material things. You're connecting with people. You're engaging people. And then you feel something else inside, something else. Our audience can't see it, but I can see your face just lighting up as you talk about it. And this goes back to Du Bois, right? They see that you are taking tremendous joy from this process. I find nowadays in school, you know, they show them these movies and they're like, the beautiful seal, it jumps through the water. And then like, it always cuts in the third act, like this seal is dying from plastic. <laughs> and you're like, oh yeah, yeah. Now the kids are up all night worrying about the seal. But it gives you that opportunity to say, you know what, that is upsetting. Let's spend Saturday going out and picking stuff off the beach. Or as they interact with the world and they see inequities and they see, you know, a person holding a sign at a intersection who's looking for food, it offers this commentary that like we can't fix everybody's problem, but we can be part of the solution in a way that in our small way. And that that helps kids find that confidence of like, I don't have to look at problems and be like, I have to sit up all night worrying about the seals. I can take some small step. This is, I mean, I think that is just the perfect. And you use the word offer. It offers opportunities. And I think oftentimes things are framed as like, well, if I can't revamp all of it, then I should do nothing, right? And what we're doing is building a muscle in our kids, which is to say, here's where I am. Here's the skills and talents that I have. What can I do here? 
And I would argue that caregivers whose children see the person at the stop sign saying that I need support is that if they choose to give, which I would encourage them to give, is that they also use it as a moment to have their children understand what homelessness is. Because sometimes children will interpret that as that person at the stop sign. And they may not have any other sign, stop sign or intersections that they see that person. And so they attribute his homelessness or her homelessness to that person. When we know as adults that these things are often in a bigger space. So it's just like, this person is here. Here's what we can do to support this person. But this thing, homelessness in general, is a part of this other thing. And you do that as children grow. Right. You don't necessarily need to give them all the stats that America has decided that some people should just be homeless. Right. You don't want to depress your kids, but you do want to have them always understand things in context, because as they grow, it is you're trying to get them to the place where they really help to revamp the society. And if they only stay at the individual level, that's a little harder. Right. And at what point do you let your child, girl or boy, sort of take the reins in what sort of change they want to be making? Do you expose them to different sorts of volunteering and different opportunities and let them decide they're saving the whales or whatever the case may be? At what point does that happen? Yes, they should always lead. You get to volunteer in the things that you're passionate about. When your kids are young for this, you know, they have to come along, right? <laughs> like they're young. They can't stay at home. They're with you. And so they're watching you volunteer and they're beginning to understand, but they're going to have their own passions, their own things that are important to them. Now, what I've found is that caregivers are happy to drag their kids along, but they're not happy to have me dragged along. Mm. Right. That's also like another situation. So a child says, I'm interested in the whales and you're interested in homelessness. And they're like, well, good luck. You and your five friends, you guys go out there, see about those whales. Let me know. Right. Let me know how they're doing out there in the ocean. It is not a reciprocal, but it is. They have their own and exposure to multiple things allows them to be able to decide which ones they want to give a high amount of energy to and a low amount of energy. What ends up happening with caregivers is like, they want kids to become professional, passionate people. Well, if you care about math, you should do math. If you care about the seals, you shouldn't be thinking about those horses. You shouldn't be thinking about those other things. Like, stay focused on this thing that you're passionate about. This is not ideal. Instead, let your child be completely eclectic and passionate about as many things because they will drill down to a few things, but it's not going to happen overnight. It's inviting to be interested in all of the things that are happening in the world. And you can take a little part of each, but consistency does work. But at the earliest stages before 10, children are everywhere. They're interested in everything, doing everything, do it. It's fun. <laughs> Let them follow it. And I think to quote, I believe Amy on an earlier podcast, we are so focused on our children being great that we forget that they need to be good. They need to have the simpler interaction of being decent to people for a reason versus like, this is going to help them get into college if they build an orphanage in Guatemala. Like... <laughs> Not that there's, you know, I mean, maybe some people do that in a good way, but I think there's a little bit of like, we forget that like the basic purpose of humanity, as I see it, is 
being decent to other people. And so being connected to other people. Yeah. Sometimes we're busy chasing something. We miss that. Everything is like a professional act. Yes. Well, how is this? Like after 12, I see caregivers being like, what is this going to mean for the high school? What is this going to mean for the college? What does it mean for the?" And I'm like, what does it mean for nothing? Doing things that actually are inviting to you. Doing things that enhance your connection to the world. Doing things that bring you joy. That is not a resume builder. That helps to build a full human. We want full humans connected to other full humans. And so we as parents have to be full humans. And it's all of you. It's all of you all the time. It's just how it works. Let's take a break. When we come back, let's talk about these girls. We've created change-making girls now, right? Now we need to create a safe space in the home to help them feel like they can achieve whatever it is they set out for themselves. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips. One thing that really struck me about the book, too, that I want to address before we are done is we get a lot of feedback from people who say, I came from a family that was not the family that I want to create. And I feel quite lost in how to create a family when my family of origin was not a healthy family, was not a family that was easy. We'd had 
Dr. Christine Cohen recently talking about the idea of ACEs childhood, which is something that you also address in your book. Can you start us with the sort of ACEs framework and bring us into for women who feel like maybe their toolbox is they don't feel confident in their toolbox because of the childhood they came from, how you in this book are outlining real concrete steps that people can take to get there, even if they don't feel that confidence. I think it's hard to be confident as a parent. Sure. Everybody. That's right. For everybody, by the way, didn't have an ACEs childhood. Don't feel that confident, guys. Right. Like, I just think there is that kind of basic reality. Parenting is unsettling. (laughs) It is the puberty of adulthood. (laughs) (laughs) So each day feels like an emotional turmoil because you're trying to navigate people who you don't know fully and they have their own minds and hearts and the best you can do is coach them. So there's that. But if you've had an adverse childhood experiences or a set of experiences, that brings some extra weight to the game. And, but it also brings some unique opportunities. I love that point. Right? It's because you know what it's like for childhood to be bad. Usually those who have not had a childhood they run into bad, right? Like you have definitive world experience of what bad looks like. So this is a blessing and a challenge. And I think the blessing comes from taking a set of practical actions, an admission of knowing that you had an adverse childhood experience or set of experiences. Some people like to run away from the past because it feels really painful. I suggest really practical steps. Take the survey to see if any of these 10 indicators are a part of your life, right? Have you had an adverse childhood experience or set of experiences? This is a survey, right, that asks these questions. We'll put it up in the show notes for this, an easy link to it. Yes. And it is run by the Department of Health and Human Services. It's also coupled with the CDC. So you can get a sense of like, in looking back on my childhood, Where were issues of abandonment? What were issues of separation? What were some of the challenges related to different levels of abuse in my family? You can really just take, it's two minutes of your life. And that gives you information right up front that maybe you haven't even thought about before. You may be carrying it around. The second is you have to adopt a mindset of a learner if you're a parent. You have to be in the business of learning generally, regardless of what your childhood is like. And you not have to become a student of yourself. When you have had adverse childhood experiences, you can either choose, make a set of decisions, right, to sit in it, or you can learn to make your way out of it. And for me, this is where imagination and therapeutic support is central. You must imagine the family you want in order to create the family you want. And then... You have to be willing to do the work to make that possible. And I, again, I come back. The work is often your work, right? For me, it's therapy and friends. The good people out there with their wonderful degrees tell me how I can be a better parent to myself so that I can give to my child and I can give to all the children in my care. And so I really encourage people to, one, first take a stock, know where you are. Two, make a decision about how you're going to approach it. Three, imagine a new possibility than the one you have had. 
because these things are really central. You can create. My family that I have is not the family I grew up with. And they are a product, much like I am, a product of my imagination, my willingness to work hard, and the supportive services that I've had to help me get to where I want to be. So Dr. Johnson Dias, you have a change-making daughter of your own. Tell us a little bit about Marley, the things that she's done, and how she came to find that passion. Yeah. So, you know, Marley's actually the reason I've written the book, because one of the consequences of having a joyful change-making girl is that you cannot just sit around and say you're not going to write a book. Um, (laughs) Right. So my daughter is the founder of the 1000 Black Girl Books campaign. And that campaign came out of one of the exercises that I have in the book, which is, you know, you only have 10 minutes use the 10 minutes to connect to your child. So after school, you know, in the fall, we enjoy having breakfast for dinner. I love breakfast so much. So good. It's so good. And so, and we're in New Jersey. So we're in the diner capital of the world. So good. So we go to diners. So, and they have breakfast every hour on the hour. So I asked her about to reflect on. So when October comes about, I'm always trying to think about what do I want to accomplish in the new year? So I asked her to look back on her previous year and she was concerned, deeply concerned about the books that she was getting in school. Now, Marley's been an advocate, you know, like an avid reader her entire life. And she loves to read. She loves to write. She loves to read. She also... But she really was concerned that the books that she was reading, she'd gotten three consecutive books, five total in the year that just had white boys and their dogs <laughs> as the main character. It's a genre of literature, white boys yep. and their dogs. Sounds like what I read in school. <laughs> right? And so a part of when she said it to me, and I am this parent, which is sometimes challenging for people, like, I don't necessarily believe you up front. I am a social scientist. So I'm like, (laughs) believe in God and all else you need data. So I was like, the sentence, she was like, all my books feature white boy dogs. And I was like, what evidence do you have to support this? Right. And so she named the books, the Shiloh series, et cetera. And I took my phone out. I looked up the work. I was like, okay, so now we have evidence. This is in fact true. And she was complaining about it. And I asked her a very simple question, which is a question I've always asked her. What are you prepared to do about it? Because this is not a Janice Wright or a Janice Johnson Dias problem. It's not my problem. I don't go to elementary school. I'm old. I'm 49. I don't have to do anything that I don't want to do. Any book I want to read, I can read. You have to listen to the good people at school. And so the charge of asking her what she is willing to do about it led her to the development of this campaign. And so she first collected a thousand books. Now she's collected 13,000 books. And she's really driven by the idea that first she thought it was just her school. And I encouraged her to look this thing up. I was like, maybe this is just happening in your classroom. Is this condition that you're, you're facing just your teacher or is it something bigger? And she looked up the information. We went through it and found out that the predominant, right, almost all of the books that are published by big publishing houses prioritize white boys And then animals and people who are racial minorities are something like between five to eight percent. And that's all my racial minorities, not imagine the intersection of black and girl. And so she's been on a international charge because she's heard from people from Japan. She's heard from every corner of the globe 
there has been sections of communities that feel like have just not been included in the literature. And so while she is advancing her case for Black girls, she really wants to open the space that the entire field of children's literature just becomes increasingly more diverse. Animals should not be before in this respect. And just for our listeners who may not know Marley, this started when she was how old? She was 10. Yeah, I mean, this is, I think people might be picturing like a 25 year old. This was a child. (laughs) young child. It's remarkable. So she's a young child. And now she is the 2021 ambassador for Read Across America. So the books in trying to get educators and caregivers to look at their libraries at home, do you have a diverse set of characters? Because she had within our household, she had books with Black kids. One of her favorite books was about a white boy and his fish, right? So it was like Croc on the Rock, right? So she has been exposed to a wide variety of books and she started to see patterns. And it's that's what I'm encouraging caregivers to do. It's like, I had no idea that this thing was going to happen, but you're in the real world, engage with the world, engage with your peers, engage with your teachers, be awake to your life. And she saw me having run the foundation everybody having to come on every volunteer thing, awake to my life, right? I'm awake to my life through the lens that I have as an adult, as an educator. She has to be awake to her life that the lens that she had was her classroom. And I always want to contextualize this for people. This is not a podcast that is telling you it is your job to somehow figure out the passion in your child that will make them an internationally renowned (laughs) superstar of any cause. Ambassador. Because we love that that (laughs) happened and that Marley is doing amazing things. But like, it's okay for this to be small. It's okay for your kid to say, I'm worried about whales and for you guys to just lean in as a family and research it and spend Saturday mornings cleaning up the beach. Like, this is empowering for everybody if you do it in small ways that you don't this is a confluence of events that happen for you and your daughter in a very specific way but the lesson is useful to every person lean in amy always says this right lean in on like if they have an idea of like let's do something fun for dinner try to lean in try to hear as many as you can and say yes and this is a similar thing try to lean in on like what they might want to do to feel more empowered and make some positive change Thank you for saying that because, you know, when she started the campaign, everyone was like, really though? Like, child, really you're collecting books? There was literally for two flat weeks in our real life, people are just like, I hear Marley's really interested in collecting some books. (laughs) And they were like, Janice, what's the deal? I was like, she's interested in it. It's not my thing, right? Like, this is not a Janice thing. She wants some books. My job as her mom is to help the child get some books, right? Like, (laughs) so she was on her own journey. And then when she, you know, she set this goal and she didn't reach it, she was just like, oh my God, nobody cares about this. And it was just little by little. And nobody knows what children's interests will be. But it was the idea that my job, she was excited about it, was to support her. Whatever that is, if I can lend my support then I will. Right now, she's excited about coding or something or and knitting. I have tried knitting. I am not good. I cannot get as passionate. Yeah, not a knitter myself. But I do go to Michael's. I will pay for the stuff. 
I can do that. I can do my part. The yarn or whatever it is, the needles. My part is to be excited and I will wear anything she makes to me. Right. And that knitting may not become internationally recognized. That might just be a hobby. It could just be a hobby, but she loves knitting. So we're all in. We're all in on the knitting, right? I love it. And that's what matters. We've been talking to Dr. Janice Johnson-Dias. Her new book is Parent Like It Matters, How to Raise Joyful Change-Making Girls. Janice, tell us where we can find you on the internet and Marley too. Okay, so I can be found. I will have a website and it will be thedrjanice.com. I'm on Instagram at at Dr. Janice Johnson. That's easy. Instagram is fun and painless. My work with Grassroots is at grassrootscommunityfoundation.org. Marley can be found at marleydias.com or I am Marley Dias on Instagram, Twitter, and everywhere else. I'll put all those links in the show notes because it's well worth your time to explore all of it. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks so much for talking to us. I am so excited. And just thank you for getting it. I mean, just for getting the idea that it is just, it's us. And these are our children, but the us in parenting really matters. And that connection, like we want people to be excited about our own passions. So we have to be people who people want to be excited. We just have to be who we want our children to be. And being that way makes life better. So it's not even a hard job. Win-win. It's not. I mean, except to actually become. Well, yeah, I mean, that part's hard, but we're not going to focus on We're trying to focus on the positive, okay? <laughs> so great talking to you. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for checking out the book. I appreciate it. Lynn, this time of year, parenting can be such a fluster clucks. You've come to the right place. I'm Lynn Lyons, and I've been treating anxious families for over 30 years. I'm Lynn's sister-in-law and co-host Robin Hudson. Join us for Fluster Clucks, a podcast for parents who worry. Wait, that's everybody. Yeah, these last few years have felt like one long anxiety attack for so many. Why do you think parents are always surprised that a podcast about anxiety relates to them, even if no one in their house has an anxiety disorder? Well, worry is human. Everyone does it. And anxiety shows up when we face uncertainty. All the parenting tips you've taught me have been essential. I love to break it down into skills we need to manage worry in our families. We've covered so many topics depression, burnout, meltdowns, perfectionism. Don't forget scary mothers-in-law. Right, but of course that's not my mother-in-law. Because that's my mother. And a listener. As a psychotherapist, I like to teach parents and kids how to respond to everyday moments in healthy ways. Managing anxiety really can be taught. It really can. And I'll even tell you what to say. We talk about serious stuff, but without being too serious. Anxiety wants everything serious. Anxiety doesn't stand a chance when we're laughing, even about the tough stuff. 